Welcome to AMDG. I'm Eric Clayton. The prophet Habakkuk writes, For the vision is a witness for the appointed time, a testimony to the end. It will not disappoint. If it delays, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not be late. Perhaps more familiar to listeners, though, are the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Waiting, particularly during this time of Advent, is a frustrating, if familiar, aspect of our faith. Waiting for justice, all the more so. But as our Advent prayer likely reveals, we are called to be contemplative and active. We do not wait passively. God invites us to have a hand in bringing about this reign of justice. Today's episode challenges us to reflect on our call to active waiting, to participation in the works of justice. My colleague, Caitlin Marie Ward, Senior Advisor on Migration for our Office on Justice and Ecology, talks with Almudena Bernabeo about the long, painstaking journey she has undergone to bring some semblance of justice to those killed during the bitter civil war in El Salvador. It's a timely conversation, as just last month, we marked the 30th anniversary of the murders of the six Jesuit priests and their associates at the University of Central America in El Salvador. Here's Caitlin Marie. Between 1980 and 1992, El Salvador fought a bitter civil war that claimed the lives of more than 75,000 people. Amongst those killed were six Jesuits, Ignacio Elacuria, Ignacio Martin Barro, Segundo Montes, Juan Ramon Moreno, Joaquin Lopez y Lopez, and Amando Lopez, their housekeeper, Elba Ramos, and Ramos' 16-year-old daughter, Selena Ramos. All were shot by members of the Salvadoran military at their residence on the campus of the Jose Simeon Cañas Central American University, more commonly known as the UCA. Their deaths sparked international outrage and marked a turning point in the Civil War. The decision by the U.S. Congress to finally cut aid to El Salvador forced the Salvadoran government to come to the negotiating table, where the government and leftist insurgency, the Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front, or more commonly known as FMLN, agreed to a negotiated settlement in December of 1991. Peace came at a steep price. Part of that settlement included amnesty, a prohibition on the investigation, prosecution, and imprisonment of individuals responsible for war crimes. At the time, this was considered necessary for peace and national reconciliation. However, human rights advocates, lawyers, and the families of victims have nevertheless steadfastly and creatively searched for decades for ways to bring justice to those responsible for human rights violations. In November 2017, Colonel Inocente Orlando Montano was extradited from where he was living in the United States to Spain, where he is currently facing charges related to his involvement in planning the murder of the six Jesuits and their companions. Here to discuss this case with us, as well as larger issues of peace, justice, and reconciliation in El Salvador, is Armudena Bernabeo, co-director of the Guadalajara Center for International Justice and the lead lawyer who helped build the case against the former Salvadoran colonel. Almudena, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, it's a pleasure. It's a great opportunity. Thank you so much. So to start us off, could you tell us a bit more about the Guernica Group, its history, and the type of work that it does? Uh, certainly. Um, we, uh, well, Guernica was founded about three years ago, right around the time that Montana was extradited. Uh, and it's, um, it's actually a group of three entities in all of the all of them 
sort of independent in, in the way they function, but they're all united by, by a mission. And the idea is that we believe that accountability for human rights abuses, for international crimes, should be addressed in a more comprehensive and transnational way. So what we are is a, a group of lawyers and investigators in at least four countries. And that we pretty much seek to develop uh, with the victims and for the victims and their communities, uh, strategies for accountability. The idea perhaps uh, behind Guernica, because I think that there are many groups, obviously, that do this work and they do it really well. The idea with Guernica and why we funded Guernica uh, in 2016 was to try to uh, spend perhaps more time with the communities that we try to impact. Uh, and for, for that, we saw that a group will be most effective. The idea is that a strategy uh, of accountability, in our opinion, to serve the country and the humans involved has to be contextualized, needs to be um, understood and owned by the people from the home countries that are going through these processes in, in order to really be effective, as we've really been facing a crisis on accountability. So that's a little bit the, the idea uh, behind Guernica, with a big presence in Latin America, but also in different regions of the world. Mm-hmm. Switching gears a little bit to the trial itself, what role did Colonel Montano play in the deaths of the six Jesuits, their housekeeper and her daughter? What exactly is it that he's accused of? Well, at the time, just to put a little bit of uh, just two seconds of context, the 1989, I was still very much uh, the war going on, even if literally this crime precipitated the, the end of it. The government was mostly military rule, and they had uh, kind of succumbing a little bit to the pressure of the United States, the military, the high command, had agreed to have a civilian president. But that meaning in the, mo- in the moment that we're talking about, uh, November 1989, only generals and coroners and members of the high command also occupied the principal political positions, meaning Ministry of Justice, Interior, Industry, you know, what it will be the cabinet in any context of a, uh, of a democratic system as we know it. So. Uh, Inocente Coronel Montano, Inocente Orlando Montano, was at the time, he's called the governance minister, al ministro de gobernación, but it will be the equivalent to the minister of interior in, in different countries. So he belonged to that reduced cabinet, a small group of generals and colonels with a lot of power who were kind of running the country with the acquiescence naturally of President Alfredo Cristiani, but really was those decisions of those generals of that cabinet that really ruled the country during that time. This is a rather complicated story with implications for multiple countries. Could you explain a little bit to folks that maybe are not familiar with the intricacies of international human rights law? How is it that it's possible for a Salvadoran colonel living in the United States could now be standing trial in Spain for a crime he allegedly committed in El Salvador? (laughs) That's a million-dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) Well, let's see... um you know, it's, 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 I think it's why it is so interesting. Perhaps I, it's something that is inevitable, but I mean, it's, it's, it's in the human, you know, desire to pursue justice. And I think that this is one of those examples. The, um, well, 
With the crime of the Jesuits, the crime against humanity was a massacre carried uh, by the state, really by the by the government of El Salvador and its members. So, as such, it's considered one of the most heinous international crimes. These crimes, uh, along with genocide, torture, extrajudicial killing, and a, and a few more, belong to a catalog of crimes that since the Nuremberg trials, since the closing of World War II, have been considered extreme, both in, in, in what the consequences, obviously, in the nature and elements of the crime, as well as the fact that these crimes, for the most part, if not entirely, are committed by states, by governments. So it's in that gravity, in that seriousness, that uh, through the, just to make it simple, through the evolution of treaties and conventions and other documents since the, human, in the, since the International Declaration for Human Rights, is that it's been always a desire, more or less sophisticated, but always a desire and an aspiration to investigate and prosecute these crimes wherever they took place, whenever they took place. And regardless, at least initially, regardless of whom the victims and the perpetrators were. So with that vocation of universality that really comes from the 1940s in the closing of World War II, is that uh, they talked about, as I said, this universal jurisdiction. Universal jurisdiction was once, not anymore, like a very pure procedural rule that said exactly that, that if you are a state of whatever, state A, you are confronted uh, and you know of these crimes, uh, regardless of whether they're victims of your country, regardless of whether the perpetrator is or is not in your country, and regardless of where those crimes took place, you could you have the, the power, not the obligation, unfortunately, but the power or the ability to investigate and prosecute. And international bodies and international uh, fans like myself and, and hopefully all our listeners uh, believe that, that that should be an obligation, that should, that should be exercised by the state. Spain became by absolutely accident in the 1980s a state that exercised in a very radical way this kind of universal jurisdiction when they, the prosecutors in the country went after former Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet. And, and it was a very special time. And it was 30 years after the Nuremberg trials. It was a, a, a moment, you know, in a very serendipity kind of way to happen in Spain, but it was just a, a moment of um, openness and, and, and modernity, if you wish. And international criminal law was created as we know it today. Soon after the International Criminal Court was formed and the Roma Statue signed, exactly absorbing these principles. So the Jesuits came, and then later, well, they perhaps the most negative and less um, inspirational side is the government decided that this universal jurisdiction was controversial that uh, was interfering with political interest of some of the states. And they began what it was a really a wave that began in Belgium and Germany, later in Spain, to undercut and limit the scope of such universal jurisdiction. So to some po at some point, the, one of the you know, fake jurisdictional criteria was created, such as what is called passive personality, which is the nationality of the victims. And it's in those days 
when um, I was doing this work, you know, I'm one of those lawyers, lucky me, they kind of got out of law school at the time, you know, these cases were flourishing and it was a new wave for, as I said, for international criminal law. So I became, I guess, sounds a little pretentious, but you become an expert just by practice that I was in the right place at the right, at the right time. And we were doing all these cases in the U.S. in federal legal system and, and we were doing them in Spain and some other countries in Europe. And the, the Jesuits case is one of those cases that by, you know, that really gather a lot of the, the elements uh, to be were very powerful. Uh, one of the most interesting, even though um, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but a very interesting crime in the sense that the victims, the Jesuits in particular, they were of Spanish nationality. They have been living in El Salvador since the 1950s out of their their commitment and their work, obviously, in, uh, um, in the Jesuit company. And they, uh, El Salvador, had these very important, and I still still that, you know, promote in those days as being a priority for the United States government, particularly and the, the Reagan administration still very much in the context of the Cold War and the anti-communism, you know, struggles that the U.S. engaged. And he became an ally and became one of the biggest recipients of U.S. aid, or military aid, for decades. So it's in that relationship that also um, when you look at what's happening and what was happening in that time with the United States, where people were complaining about this administration, uh, Reagan's administration and their treatment in Latin America, you had a lot of critical um, minding, thinking about, about what was happening. And, and there was a lot of interest, a genuine interest and in knowledge about El Salvador. So when the crime took place, um, you had Spanish victims, you had perpetrators and witnesses and and many other components of the case attached to the United States. And then you had one jurisdiction, which is a Spain capable of housing uh, this investigation and this pursuit for justice. So we decided to act. I'm not sure if I'm doing a good job because it's different, but it actually the case is, is the manifestation of why transnational litigation could be potentially if done um, adequately, you know, so effective. So given how complex the situation is, um, uh, the, the, the changing laws, the fact that it uh, involves three different countries, I can imagine there are many challenges in prosecuting or investigating a case like this one. Um, what for you has been the most challenging part of this process and were there any unexpected challenges? Um, you know, the most, the most challenging, perhaps, uh, which now, it's always, there are two things, you know, now Alice is ever come, one of them is, is time, you know, everything, generally speaking, litigation is a lengthy process. And, and, you know, time is always up against you because they, they it takes, everything takes forever. In this particular case, the fact that we found, which is extraordinarily good, Montana in the United States, the fact that we were able, which is even better, to get the United States government engaged, not in a deportation or just getting rid of someone, but in a whole extradition, which essentially requires to acknowledge the existence of a criminal offense, in this particular case, an act of terrorism on behalf of the Salvadoran government. I mean, the implications 
of all of that were very challenging. Trying to get that uh, going was extremely challenging, but I, um, but I'm glad we did it. And perhaps, perhaps at the time is you know as a consequence, it's, it's been ten years since we filed these cases, which is, <laughs> which is a long, long time. Unexpected challenges. I am, you know, no. As I said, the whole. I was always hopeful. The whole idea of requesting the extradition from the United States government and from the Department of Justice to grant such extradition and the Department of State were at one one point uh, something that I did not expect it will happen. So we kind of gear up to provide everything they needed. You know, we try to convey the relevance of this case and to both prosecutors in Spain and authorities in the United States. And I'm still kind of walking on air that actually we were able to get that done. So speaking of time, you know, it takes a, a long time to uh, gather all the information, uh, but also part of the challenge, I would guess, is that uh, it's hard to gather evidence for something that happened decades ago. So this is a an issue, I think, or a response that uh, one would get a lot uh, when discussing uh, this case or cases like it. So I just wanted to know, what would be your response to somebody who would say that bringing a man to trial for a crime that he uh, allegedly committed 30 years ago, it simply reopens old wounds and prevents El Salvador from healing, that this happened 30 years ago and should be left in the past, that this is the purpose of amnesty and that uh, really nothing good can come out of uh, digging up crimes committed decades ago. Right. I actually think that they, um, that is a, kind of like a false premise that you realize it's always used by perpetrators and very rarely by victims. I just don't think that a process any, any as we know, and I am absolutely convinced of that, any process where a state violence has been inflicted over human beings and civilians, there's never can be truly a, a, a time of passing or, a, or overcoming, you know, those moments. Of course, you can enrich full peace. I mean, peace that provides you for stability and really for continuance, you know, as, as a country recovers from that without some measure of accountability. That I'm 150%. There's no such thing as wounds reopen. I think the wounds never close. If you do not have a process in which this violence is acknowledged, those who were uh, that can be collectively, can be individually, that can be in tribunals, as I think Latin America prefers for the longest time, but maybe it's not the only way. I never said that it's the only way. But some measure of accountability has to be. I do believe that the um, time passes, obviously, it's, it's against us it's because it makes more difficult. I think that's what impunity lays, is that it makes more difficult to investigate. Witnesses die on you. Victims may or may not die as well. I mean, people start, we are fungible, you know, people start uh, disappearing. So investigating, I also, however, I will tell you as a counter argument there, that sometimes, some path, sometimes needs to lapse before a crime of this nature can be properly investigated, precisely because um, there are moments when a society is closing a particular cycle of violence or, or political you know, abuse, 
is nobody's prepared. Everybody distrusts uh, too much everybody. There's too much polarization. So I don't think that it's just a moment where you can say, and besides that, me, Attorney General, going to start uh, going after all the guys on this side of the story uh, because the victims demanded. You know, sometimes it's good to wait a little bit. So what I think is that the actual demand for justice and accountability on behalf of the victims has no expiration date. And I say that in every single public forum I've ever been. And they never forget because they can't, because it's their children, it's their husbands, it's their own bodies, it's their little towns. Whatever violence they suffer, uh, it's very easy when you are outside of that to say, well, you know, who cares? It's so easy to just let me let it go. It's better for everybody. We talk about something else so that we don't talk any and ever again about what happened. But that is far from forgetting. <laughs> That's far from ignoring. And I think that people should understand that. It always comes back. And I've seen it in every single country that I ever work, and I'm seeing it in my country, which is even you know more interesting that after 70 years, I people are demanding for the justice that they never receive. And I just find fascinating when people are wondering right now, you know, in small circles, how is that, how is that victims, you know, half of them are dead. It's like, yeah, half of them are dead. But no, they're, no, their children, no, their grandchildren. And they were all, you know, listening to the same stories or being denied the same truth. So actually, that would be my answer. It's never going to go away. So better to do it better, well and thoughtfully than just being surprised by the justice demands of the victims 30 years later. Mm. So we, we talked about wounds that have never healed or never closed. Um, I think that it could be accurate to say that there are new wounds that are forming every day in El Salvador. I just want to give you some statistics about um, some of the issues that are happening in El Salvador right now. So El Salvador ranked in the bottom quartile for gross domestic product per capita among Latin American states in 2018. According to Inside Crime, El Salvador had a homicide rate of 51 per 100,000 people in 2018. Around 31,000 Salvadorans fled violence, corruption, and poverty in their home country to seek asylum in the United States during fiscal year 2018. And so in light of these statistics and these ways in which new wounds are forming, how would you respond to someone who might say that we should be focusing on improving conditions for the citizens of El Salvador today and that supporting efforts to address crimes committed 30 years ago is a distraction or it's a, an excuse to be used or exploited by politicians to not address the ongoing economic and social issues that are affecting El Salvador today. Right. But you see, this is what I um, that I was trying to say, and I don't know if very eloquently or not, is that everything is connected. And part of why uh, I believe something like the case, uh, a trial in Spain for the Jesuits killing is relevant. It's not because, you know, I want glory and, and I want to be famous. It's because it's one more um it's, it's kind of giving closure and providing for some truth and hope for a society that has been broken into pieces and never healed back because there was absolutely no attention to the human beings that were part of that society. So for me, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not only 
during the during the civil war is more structural than that, and it goes back. It goes back to the inequality, the poor conditions, um, the the lack of you know like. The, a way of, of getting out of their own poverty and misery of that and the inequality in the, in the society in particular was one of the core reasons of such violence. You know, it was people refusing to live in those conditions and therefore kind of taking arms and trying to change things. And then they were smashed by extremely powerful military um, class and military and, and rich sectors of the society that naturally wanted for things to remain the same. And then, after all of that violence was exercised, it was ignored and the victims completely excluded and any demand for justice rejected. So to me, they're perpetuating the cycle of not being able to fix these problems. And it's not true that... um, you know, the one thing excludes the other. It's not true they talk about justice or they talk about accountability and will exclude the need for economic reforms or for some sustainable, you know, economical criteria that will allow for more people to have more jobs or leave less the country and immigrate in those, under those desperate conditions. So I think that separating it is where the, where the lies are and what distracts really human beings. Of course, you know, having to eat every day seems uh, more tangible uh, and, and, and immediate and urgent than talking about, you know, accountability in Madrid. But what people need to understand is that those things are absolutely, um, absolutely tied together. And only by doing one, we will eventually be able to address effectively and perhaps for once and for all the other. And I think that the Salvadoran victims and Salvadoran communities, for what is worth, are very clear about that. Yeah, I think you, you've explained really well how the two are not completely disconnected or two completely separate issues that in pursuing this case against Colonel Inocente Orlando Montano, it is helping to strengthen and fortify and build support for a stronger judicial system in El Salvador itself, um, that it's not exactly. uh, one or the other. It's both working together um, to address longstanding issues of inequality and impunity. Um, I think you explained that really well. So it's, and I, I'm sorry. No, no go ahead. May, like, and, and I think, Veronica, one of our... Uh, and there will be an opportunity to discuss it. Uh, but uh, one of our kind of commitments is to El Salvador. I mean, the case is a tool. But right now, the situation in El Salvador requires for an organization like Guernica to be there. We've been trying to help colleagues nationally who are organizing around these issues. And as I said, for me, the, the relevance of this trial in Spain will be its ability to impact uh, favoring these new organizations and new movements on behalf of the victims in El Salvador. Mm. So speaking of uh, some of these movements that we're hoping will emerge as a result of this process, um, so perhaps some of these movements could be within Jesuit circles or Jesuit networks, and particularly given the fact that this is a uh, podcast with the Jesuit conference. Um, I'm wondering what role do you think people in the Jesuit community, parishes or universities, social centers, could play in supporting your efforts or the efforts of others to bring justice to victims of gross human rights violations and their families? Well, I think that the 
to be honest, Jesuits, um, institutions, uh, like you say, educational institutions, just to not go any further, have always been... Um, has always been decisive and very active in making this relevant and covering. I will encourage, you know, maybe I'm a little pretentious, but I would love if these cases are study in in the curricula. You know, some law schools have said it's not about just the legal aspects of it. It's actually the human um, measure of this case that actually puts four countries together. I think the uh, no thinking that a crime of 35 years ago or 20 years ago is out of the model or is, is not relevant or the new generations don't want to hear. I think that memorialization requires for you to repeat it every year because every year you will have a new generation that needs to hear what is justice, what was the struggle, what were the messages and what were the research and studies and, and, and commitment of these human beings, not only the Jesuits, but the people of El Salvador that I think Elba and, and Selena represent uh, tragically, you know, so well. Uh, so I think that the, it's, um, I think the world is very convoluted and it's very, uh, what I want to say, I mean, this is a total cliche what I'm going to say, but it is true that there's it's a sense of agony and, and, and speed in the world. There is very little space for reflection on big issues. I think we all want to believe that we are all democratic, that we all have proper values of justice and, and equality, but it's not true. We don't take the time to really understand um, past the struggles, what is still to be done, what has not been done, including accountability efforts properly, and then we can say that we fail. And I think that it's it's all right for me to be a lawyer doing this for, for 20 years at 47 and say that we failed, that we did not do it as well as we were supposed to on behalf of the victims. So I think that all of these debates are relevant, and I think that by mandate, by desire, and by obviously um, by mission, I think that the Jesuit community should be doing a lot more even, and because they do it really well. That's 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 great to hear. We like to hear that our our Jesuit community is doing things well. Um, so one final question, and we've touched a bit on sort of how miraculous it is that this trial has gotten to the point that it's at. Um, that after so many years of impunity, there's a possibility of uh, justice for the Jesuits, for their companions, for their families. So. Um, it's taken 30 years to extradite uh, Colonel Montano to, to Spain to face trial. However, there still isn't a guarantee that he will be convicted or held accountable for his crimes. Uh, in the midst of such uphill battles, in this case and in others that you may be working on, what is it that gives you hope and what is it that allows you to keep going? Well, um, that's a very beautiful question. I mean, what gives me hope It's the ability to transform what most people throw, and maybe I was born like that, I don't know, but when most people throw their hands to their head and say, oh my God, this is so difficult, this is impossible, I think that, that nothing is impossible, to be frank. I think that you just have to be mindful and thoughtful. Miracles don't exist, but persistence and resilience do. And I think that you just, you know, get ready to work 
And and you have to like hard work, and I don't mean it. Um, you know, I guess I'm a harder worker than anybody else. I mean that you have to be prepared. You need to like almost like you are a construction worker of the law. <laughs> you just really need to to realize that there is a little bit perhaps harder than other fields or than other than other efforts. And what keeps me going, I think, and there's also that you do these. Well, not only for the victims, and sounds again maybe uh, maybe cliche or typical, but it's not true. And I mean it in the most respectful way. You are a company with the with humans in the most um, devoted and honest way from the beginning to the end. And there's nothing. At least I mean, maybe other people may be more seclusive, and maybe they don't like that. That to me. That is the measure of what keeps me, you know, going and, and happy and, and functioning is that it is really a very, um, it's a very human and a very existential experience as a consequence. And the ability to do even a tiny thing um, and impact few others or have that debate at a very human level, it's extremely rewarding. I, I don't think everybody has that sort of outlook and that ability to keep going and uh, get take energy from small steps. So I, I think I speak for all our listeners when I say that that's really admirable and we just thank you and congratulate you for, for all the work that you've done. Um, thank, thank you so much. So, well, um, so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing and best of luck uh, as this case moves forward. Thank you very much. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook via facebook.com backslash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. (laughs) 